When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I finally, finally, finally have Dr. Jeffrey Hayes, my queen, a leader, a teacher, a visionary, and she's now a brand new entrepreneur. And full disclosure, Jeffrey is a former client. I mean, our agency, Burke Creative, revitalized the Three Walls brand last year. We created a new visual identity website. We platformed the organization on Google. We created new content. We trained the staff. We talked about how to use their voice online for three walls, which is, you know, an amazing um, artistic experience. But what I really, really, really loved about working with Jeffreen was that she understood what it's like to be a black creative woman in spaces where we're not seen or we don't exist at all. And I felt seen all the time, all the time. And that was such a remarkable experience for me because yes, I have worked with black women before but I've not really worked with a black woman in rich artistic spaces like Jeffreen. You know, I feel like she understands what it feels like to be a super creative in a white room and to even have a white person look at you and say, wow, we've never met a black person that does great stuff like you. Like you, where did you, what do you people exist? Like, where are you from? And I just like, she, there was never that, that experience. But the fact that I've had those experiences was not, a foreign concept, you know? And so today I'm excited because I want to hear Jeffreen talk about not only how she turned the organization Three Walls around, because it used to be a white facing enterprise and it is now a multicultural and black experience. And I wanna know how she turned it around, but not too much because she's got her own platform now and I need to hear about that. So Jeffreen Hayes, PhD is a black woman who uses her lived experiences and scholarly research in race, museums, and visual culture to reimagine new worlds. Jeffreen creates and holds space for the black community through her curatorial and leadership work. She has extensive curatorial experience and some of her projects include Silos, Augusta Savage, Renaissance Woman, Afro Cobra, Messages to the People, Afro Cobra Nation Time, and Embracing the Lens, Black Florida Project. Jeffreen also speaks and writes about our history, black arts and arts activism. She is a TEDx speaker and recently spoke about arts activism in Simple Steps. Her writing can be found in several independent online and print publications dedicated to art criticism. Welcome, 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 Dr. Hayes, Jeffreen. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. And it has been a minute trying to get this organized. It sure has. It sure has. I mean, we did get sidetracked, you know, with um, all the things happening in the world, which is which are very distracting for us in particular, but we've managed to make our way through it. Before we get into the crux of things, I need to know, where did you grow up? Were your parents artists? Like, were you on a traditional life path as a little girl? Because I'm trying to get to make the connection. So I grew up in a military family. My dad was in the Navy. And so we spent most of our time in Florida. And I was really fortunate to have art education as just part of my life in public schools. In terms of were my parents artists, no. 
My mom, though, is a master gardener. And I have realized over time, especially around my work at Three Walls and really thinking about art more broadly, that she was my first introduction to art. And she's very creative in terms of how she designs the garden. And so while it's not traditional art, right, I was always surrounded by it. And I loved art class. But my path was not as straight and narrow. I'm the first in my family to go to college. And so for my parents thinking about their children, right, and what success looked like, it was absolutely about going to college, getting a very stable job so you could take care of yourself. I share that part because there was a part of me that actually really wanted to be a creative and go to school for it. And that was just not even a conversation that my dad would entertain. Even though my mother has always been the person fighting for me to fulfill my dreams. And I remember them having many arguments around my education and and my career path. And so I started out as a chemistry major with the intent to become a pharmacist. And within my sophomore year, I realized that I could not imagine a lifetime as a pharmacist. And I took a summer class at the local community college, and it was an art history class, and that was it. I changed my major. I interned at the Orlando Museum of Art, and I never looked back. And then it just so happened the program was creating a humanities internship. And so I applied. I mean, this was for credit, so I was also paying for it. (laughs) And it just so happened to be around the time that Carrie James Marshall, Chicago master artist, was having a show at the museum. So they saw an opportunity with me to connect with the black community. And this is what museums do. At that point, I was the only black person in the education department. And mind you, I'm an intern, not getting paid. And there were no black curators on staff. And so this was my introduction to how institutional racism shows up in the art world. But it was, it was really interesting to think about uh, education department all young white women who were also a couple of them in grad school for education coming up with educational programs and coming up with the the language for tours and not really getting to the depth of the work at this time was your decision to do this solidified were you starting to feel that spark at this early time when you when you were an intern I wasn't 100 percent sold on museums but I knew that I wanted to research black artists research is part of storytelling and I think probably maybe unconsciously I recognized too that there was a need for people who look like me to be in these spaces but also to help write art history. Because up until that point, and again, like this is a semester internship, 
I had only been, in terms of art history, I had only been exposed to, in my classes, to Western art. I wasn't exposed to Black artists or African-American artists. It was Western and it was European. And then the collections at the museum. And I remember talking with a curator and like a lot of museums, Orlando Museum of Art at that time had a white woman as the curator of African art. And so I talked with her about, well, what is her job? And she talked about research and putting together exhibitions. And I was like, oh, well, the research part I'm, I'm really down with. Didn't really understand how exhibition making took place because I was in the education department. But I knew that art would be my life. I just didn't know it would turn out the way that it has. As you're talking about Black art, African art, being owned by predominantly white companies and institutions, um, I think about that phenomena of white institutions funding black and non-white art. Um, this is a conversation that's full of landmines and it's scary for us black people to bring it up. How are you using your platform to create a safe space for these discussions? So we understand the wealth disparity in our society. And yes, a lot of the money is in white hands, white institutions, white foundations, white individuals. And whether it's an art museum or a commercial gallery or a nonprofit art space, chances are it's going to be funded through whiteness. And so when I say that, meaning the institutions, right, that have, have the cash, my attitude about it has shifted a little bit because I do think that there are boundaries that can be created. So when I think about the work that I do, whether it's at Three Walls or curating or any other cultural work that I'm doing, I make my decision through values, right? So I have a, a set of values that... Um, I absolutely hold really strong to. And one of those values is, are you actually pro-black, right? Like being anti-racist is not enough for me because we need to talk about like the nuances of racism and how anti-blackness is a through line. So we have had donors who felt like they were the white savior, right? And once that begins to really show up through their engagement with us, we actually do not go back to them for additional funds because it's really one demoralizing, it's paternalistic, and it actually doesn't do anything to move the needle forward for the organization. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like dirty money. I mean, I, and I hate to say that. I mean, I don't, I'm not, I, I would. I hear you. I, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to say that in the context of, and I'm not apologizing when I say this, but there are strings attached to some money and some of the strings are too tight. They're too wound up and some of them turn into ropes. 
so you know i am grateful for that conversation because it's something that needs to be talked about a lot more and it's a painful conversation jeffreen because many of us are terrified to lose our jobs if we stand up and say wait a minute this doesn't work this isn't logical this doesn't make sense this is actually wrong and it's the antithesis of what we believe in but i better take this money anyway otherwise we'll not survive it's it's an ongoing conversation with black people make a decision do you need the money or do you want the dream like what it's like sometimes they're, they're totally different paths and you have to decide which one to take and that's a huge sacrifice for black people because we don't have enough in this country to say we don't have enough to say to say no I agree with you. It is not an easy decision. But I also think if you go in knowing what it is and be prepared, then I'm not going to fault you for taking the money because we know where the money is. At the same time, though, as a human and as a Black woman who loves so deeply Black folk and really want all of us to win, I have to be able to sleep at night. And so there have been many times where I have walked away. You're a person just from your TED Talks, listening to you, your, you know, watching your work, observing you. You're a person who's not afraid to challenge institutions. And I'd really love to know how you've become so unapologetic about your criticism of the museum cultural space. So I have been thinking about this really intensely over the past year because I'm quiet and I'm a bit shy. And so I'm in my head a lot. But there is something about injustice for me that I'm going to critique the institution. And I started critiquing while inside the institution when I was at Birmingham. Because I was at Birmingham Museum of Art for a very specific reason. And it was not only to help curate and build a collection around African-American art, but it was also to connect with the Birmingham community. And while I was there, I realized that they actually didn't want that latter piece. They didn't want to actually connect with the predominantly black community. And I started to critique while I was there. I wrote a blog and got me in a little bit of trouble in that the leadership tried to censor me and I said, you can't. That's when I recognized the power of being the only one in the room. And if I'm there to represent my community, I have to speak. It's not enough for me to be at the table. I don't want to be at the table alone. And that's why I critique. I also understand my privilege because I have a PhD. I have a curatorial background, and I have a stellar reputation in the field. So I use that to my advantage. But then I also recognize that I come from a line of black women who have always been about justice and have always been about community. And it wasn't even a thought to fight for your folk. And so I realize that's also part of what gives me the courage to just speak. I'm no longer dealing in white space anymore. I am creating my own space and holding space for other folks to join me there. There is no joy or pleasure anymore. Not that there ever was, 
for me to be navigating white space, especially in the arts. And what is really beautiful about this moment in time, even though, yes, we're going through a pandemic and there's so much loss on so many levels, what this moment has shown me is that holding space for the people who show up for you, holding space for the people who are looking to to be cared for and are not receiving that care in white space is much more important. And this is one of the reasons why I'm here. I have been put on this earth. This is my purpose. And I'm just really trying to continue to build that and build it with other folk. So no, I have kind of, I've checked out of white space. When it comes to being a change agent in an organization, how do the people who are in those positions know if they're up to the task? Do we do we need PhDs? There are emerging degrees in diversity, equity, inclusion. You know, depending on how you've been able to navigate certain spaces, you might find yourself in a position where predominantly white institutions are saying, hey, do you have any ideas around this? If that's a relationship that's one that has enough equity and power where you feel like it's not someone trying to suck all your black girl magic. How do you gauge if you should be the person in that position? You don't need a degree to, to do this work. You need to have a commitment to change. And you should have a track record of building community, building relationships, not being afraid to to speak to inequities and injustices in that work. And that work doesn't need to take place even in a really formal setting. A lot of folks who quite frankly should be in these positions are folks who are on the ground in community doing this work. If you are not willing to put yourself on the line for access, inclusion, and equity, then you are not in the right role. You will end up being the gatekeeper and really just a tool of oppression in that, in that way. If you are reaching out to other folk who are doing this work to, uh, in a sense, help lead you you're probably also not in the right role um, because this is collective work, this is community work. But if you can't lead the work inside and you're looking to other people to lead the work inside, then you actually should bring those people in, right? And you step up and step aside. That doesn't always happen, we know that. Yeah, and I mean, it can happen because there's people in those roles that truly they have to have their job. I mean, we're, we're talking about a community and a culture of deficit, especially in the black community. I mean, there's people now that are, you know, black and running really big things. 
And I dare say that they're going to keep running those big things and not making too many changes because they were put there by people that don't want the change. Just like when you were in the fellowship, you know, position in Birmingham and you realize looking around like, you know what, they really don't want the latter half of my mission and goal to be here. So I need to go to rebuild because I need to go to a place that's really working on the real work of, you know, building and creating black spaces. So, you know, again, I, I don't think we have an answer to how to help black people that are in a constant state of navigation every single second, whether they know why they're there, whether they don't know why they're there, whether they're trying to do something while they are there, whether they don't even know what they don't know while they're there. I mean, there's just so much going on that, again, you know, what you're doing, I think, is a complete and utter victory, even though you're still on the journey because you're speaking truth to power in ways that a lot of people can't. And, you know, also want to just mention that there are black people that are speaking truth to power, but they're just a little more quiet about it. They're doing other moves in other ways. And they're kind of doing like a little underground railroad in, in some ways to get things done in the way they can. So it just, it looks a lot different depending on where you are living. I know in the art community though, a space that I'm in as a creative person, where, you know, there were times when I would be looking for a job in the high end design community and being looked upon as, wow, like we've never actually seen a black person here and we've never had a black person come from an art school. And wow, you're really good. But, you know, did you grow up, you know, where did you grow up? <laughs> it's like, what does that matter? Look at my work. There's always been barriers. So that's one of the reasons why I was really excited for my agency to work with Three Walls. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm finally working with an amazing reputable institution that's supported by other reputable institutions and my work is being recognized to do some good in a space that has been historically denied and blocked to black people and we can't get our art on the walls of museums it's hard and when we do get up there they're usually in areas that are related to diversity and inclusion are we hanging next to a monet maybe some Right. So there, there's some, but I'd want to go back to what you said earlier in terms of we're working with a deficit. I want to work with those folks who are thinking about abundance in a different way, because for so long, our existence has been tied to this deficit and lack of. One of the things that I always find really troubling about you know, living in Chicago, understanding the segregation is a whole nother uh, character in the city that when I talk about the work that Three Walls does in supporting black artists, brown artists, and doing work in the neighborhoods, there's this automatic shift to, well, are you working South Side? And it's not because that there's an abundance of creativity on the South side, it is because there is this sense of, well, the South side is lacking. And I will tell them, yes, we're gonna work on the South side, but we're going to work with what is already there because there's an abundance of art and creativity that lives there. And so it is about shifting the mind and how we perceive black communities. So I just, I wanted to put that in there because I. I think we have to be, in terms of your earlier question of how do we change, I think we also have to change our language. We have to change the narrative. We have to expand it. And we can't allow others to tell the story, to define who we are. If we were able to 
to balance that, a lot of change could actually happen. I love abundance. And I think that that's a great way to put that in perspective. It's challenging for many people to think of abundance in the time frame you are right now, which I think is where I'm coming from, is that in this moment, it takes a lot to have an abundant mindset right now because there's so many people that don't have abundance. And it's not even actually right now, just black people. I mean, it's a lot of people because we're in a pandemic. So I appreciate that switch of a mindset. And again, to your point, to be able to do that in this moment and to still persevere and move forward is what makes the black community in America, specifically black Americans, so strong and resilient because we do have that. I agree. We probably don't recognize that abundance enough. We don't even realize that we have so much of it sometimes. We have so much of it that we don't even talk about it. It's like a given. It's our state of being that we don't actually articulate it in that way. And you're right. Other people do give us a narrative of deficit. But on the other hand, we are at, a, at, a, at this moment in time, there is stuff happening that's making it really difficult. And a lot of us are exhausted and feeling like we're under attack. I wonder how do you continuously come from that place of abundance with everything that's happening right now with the pandemic and all the murders, the public murders of black people, right? How do you still create? How are you still able to make all this work? So I am an eternal optimist. I recognize that I've always also been someone who has had one foot in the future. I also say I've been here before and I use that term in various ways. And I say that not to say that I'm immune to what's happening in the world. I absolutely feel it, but I am using that to create. Uh, I'm using that as motivation. And so when I'm thinking about writing about the things happening in art museums or really wanting to lift up black culture, especially in this moment where there is this very, very public an unapologetic assault on black people. I am really wanting to create a space where people, even if it's only for five minutes or 10 minutes or an hour, where they can feel seen. How do we try and get to that place of balancing the horrors in the world with joy? And I'm living in this place of creating moments of joy, because that is very necessary to actually process the horrors. And so I am also someone who very much wants to be prepared to hold folks closely and lovingly once we get on the other side of this. When I think about what it means to be on the other side of this, it looks to me like black people investing in black art and being the ones to, to hold their own legacies in that way. Folks have to understand that they are part of a lineage. What we're experiencing right now is really nothing new. How do you take the lessons of the past and apply them in such a way that we don't have to have this conversation in 10 years? I feel like what you're doing is a model for how other people can do, other black people can do things. But no, a lot of black people don't have the courage to do the things you're doing. But 
I really do want to talk about black women and mental health, right? Because I feel like within the work that you're doing, um, you're holding up a lot of spirits and a lot of souls and a lot of creative experiences. You're holding all of it up and you're speaking truth to power in ways other people are scared. And, and you've taken some hits for it. You've taken some hits for doing this, okay? You're, you're taking professional hits, personal friendships, you know, connections, networks, like you've done a lot. And there's other people that are doing that too. But for black women in particular, what do we need to do to survive this as a black woman? The, the pandemic, being a creative artist, having other black women in our community, employing black women, like what what kinds of stuff are, are, are working for us? Because I feel like we are being crushed in a lot of ways. And I know you're like, Ginger, don't talk from a place of deficit. Talk about the abundance. And I'm like all about the abundance, but I'm still like, you know what? We are out here. I would suggest one strategy is to connect with other Black women who are like-minded. I have been able to do the work that I do because I have Black women in my life that are aligned with how I work and they support it. And it's not a lot of people. When we talk about community, we, I think, sometimes tend to believe that we need hundreds of people or even tens. If you have two or three really down black women who are in their own right doing that thing and y'all are doing it together, that's really important. So connecting with like-minded folks is really, really important. I also think because of the work that we do and completely recognize that a lot of black women while holding space for themselves are holding space for their partner, their spouse, their children, their families, in addition to work life, right? Because of that, it's also important to carve out time for yourself. And sometimes you may not be able to get that day or that hour, but even if you're carving out five or 10 minutes and it's just you, you're turning off your phone and you shut the laptop and you are just still, there's a lot of value in that. That's care. That's a lot of care. And I don't think black women take that physical care enough. We don't do it enough. I mean, I would suggest that not only do we not do it for ourselves, but we don't give other black women a break. I don't know. I, I, I like taking the time and taking the space, but I also want black women to give it. I want black women to say to another black woman, you need to take a break. You need to take time. I'm cutting you off for a little while because I believe in you. I love you and I want you to be healthy. So I'm, I'm telling you now that I want you to do this and you will not lose your job. You will not get hurt. You will not be abused. You can do this and be, be know that when you come back to me, everything's going to be even better. I hear you on that. And I think it goes back to what I said earlier in the sense of internalizing things. And a lot of times we are not compassionate with ourselves. So how can we extend compassion to someone else? How can we care for someone else if we're not caring for ourselves? And that's why I strongly believe it really does begin with who you are and are you centered enough to hold space for other women in that way? And a lot of us just don't have that. 
And I think part of it is cultural. A lot of it is social, right? Like black women, many of us have not been raised to love ourselves. And so we pour into other people and a lot of times it's our family, but we don't pour into ourselves. And I think that's important in building and caring for other black women. And I'll be frank, like I, I hear what you're saying and I have experienced that early in my career with black women who were not nice to me, who were quite frankly, the worst bosses I've ever had, just mean and nasty. And I realized that I, it wasn't about me, it was them. And from that moment on, I don't try to even work with folks like that. And so my circle of women, not just black women, we're generous with each other. And I understand the power in that, in me going to you and saying what you're saying. I believe in you. I trust you. I don't need to micromanage you because we're working together because I see your value. I see your talent and I want you to show up. And I know how rare that is. It was, it's been rare for me. But I also had a mother who always told me that, even when I was in these white spaces. And so for me to be able to, to receive that and then give that is, is a blessing. I would only work with black women. <laughs> because there is something so powerful to build with black women who are on it. When it comes to internalizing things, one of the things that we tend to internalize a lot is this idea that we all have to be super women. There's not a lot of in-between for us. There's either a black woman that's totally doing it and kicking butt, or she's not there. So how do we fight imposter syndrome? Because when you first get your foot in the door you know, of that space, even if you know what you know, there's still a bit like, I'm not this person. And I think that's something that we deal with a lot, that perfectionism, that imposter syndrome. I mean, do you have it? No. Mm -mm. That's why I'm, I'm thinking about the question and how to answer it. I don't have it. Mm -hmm. I have to give it to my mom. Like my mom has always built not just me, but my brother and my sister, as well as my dad, telling us that we were just as good or better and to own that. And if you are there, it is because you deserve to be there. But I understand that absolutely imposter syndrome is a thing. And I just feel like it's a thing because folks haven't been affirmed. And if you haven't been affirmed and you are strong in what you know and how you do it and who you are, Imposter syndrome can be something really debilitating. I've seen that with, with friends. I also know certain spaces, 
will suck that right out of you, that that confidence. But I think this is also where, as Ginger was saying before, like we, we have to be able to build each other up. It is an act of vulnerability. And a lot of us are afraid to be vulnerable. That's where perfectionism comes into play. That's where overthinking comes to play. And you have to get to a place where you're okay being vulnerable and acknowledging, but also understanding that you are where you are supposed to be. And when it's time for you to move on, you will also know that. You just said something about moving on. When is the time to move on? And obviously right now for you, you're still running three walls. You have not made a decision that it's time for you to move to something else. However, you have built your own platform, right? So, and what I love about this new platform of yours is that when we first were together, you were so like anti-social media. And now you're just like, you're all online. You've totally been able to accept the online experience and use it to your advantage to build your platform. What is your new platform that you just brought to life within the last, I think maybe six months? I mean, it's for the love of black, right? Isn't that your platform? It's amazing. You have a podcast. So talk a little bit about that because that's exciting. Yeah. So for the love of black is a platform and project that I've been really thinking about for a couple of years, actually. I love curating. It is something that I am really great at. I love the work that I do at Three Walls, but I also recognize that I have much more to share and give. And I do have somewhat of a presence on Instagram in terms of what I share and and how I share it outside of curating. I talk a lot about institutional racism in the arts. And I began to recognize two things. Folks really wanted me to do a podcast. And then also recognizing that with Instagram, there's a lot of limitation in sharing. And I also don't necessarily own the content. And I also really like to write about Black art, what's going on in the world. And the beauty of my time at Birmingham developed really beautiful relationships with that community, did really great projects, but my blog was really incredible. And a lot of folks loved my voice and what I was sharing. And so it is like a combination of things. So For the Love of Black is a, is a black space. It is a space where I will also have a podcast talking about some of these very things i'll interview well not even interview like really have conversations with uh artists and creatives and thinkers and and folks who aren't always amplified in the mainstream so sharing space and holding space with them and also writing about the issues of the day really focusing on the thing that I know. I know art, I know race, I know museums, I know visual culture. And just putting my own voice out there because what I've also learned over my time in the art world is that there isn't a lot of space in the mainstream for an outspoken, dark-skinned black girl like me. No one is coming to check for me in that way. 
we know that there's colorism in our community and the world. There's absolutely colorism in the art world. As friends like to describe me, I'm a free black girl. I'm free. I'm a speak how I speak. I'm not going to sugarcoat things for you. At the same time, I do have really radical ideas that disrupt the system. They're not going to give me a platform because they want to keep the status quo. And so that is the space that I'm holding on for the love of black. I don't want to wait for someone to recognize that I'm brilliant. I don't want to wait for someone to recognize that, oh, she's actually onto something. I have it already. It's just going to be on my, my platform where I also own it and control it. And I think that is something that black artists and creatives have to be much more mindful of owning your intellectual property. What piece of advice would you would you give to a young person that doesn't have a lane of experience who's now being asked to write, comment, say something? What do you think about this? Let me share your work. I would recommend spending time observing and paying attention to the behaviors and paying attention to who are not just my allies, but my co-conspirators. And also in doing that, decide where the line is for you. Don't let them decide for you. It's really important that when opportunities come to us from these spaces that it sounds so cliche, but it's true, like that you don't sell out your soul because you can't go back. You can't go backwards once you do that. And so observe and then make sure you decide at what point to walk away and be okay with that. What I've learned is, particularly in the case of like the New York Times, there will be another opportunity with somebody else. It may not be the piece that I wrote, but there will be another opportunity. It may take a little bit longer, but you don't have to say yes to everything because something better will come along. And for you, what I think is remarkable is even though you were faced with this incredible opportunity to publish in the New York Times, it's pretty much every writer's dream. You know, and I know that that's just one more step to the next amazing piece. And I feel like your amazing piece is your own intellectual property, which you've launched, which is, which is great. Where is it on Instagram for the love of black? So it is for the love underscore BLK. I'm also on Twitter, not my favorite place. I have to say I get overwhelmed with Twitter. And so at Twitter, it's the love of underscore BLK. I'm kind of curious. We had such an amazing conversation, but I do, I do want to understand outside of the meditative spiritual space that we try to put ourselves in before we go to sleep at night, whether that is a 
a wine-based experience, CBD oil, or just, you know, meditation and, you know, like whatever it is. I'm eating a lot of cupcakes. I'm going to tell you right now, I bought cupcakes at Whole Foods. I know you're shaking your head, Esther. You're like, no, because she's eating seaweed chips. She's eating seaweed chips. I'm you do. You're eating healthy color. food. I definitely have some unsalted Unsalted? Because I too I'm can eat an entire <laughs> box of cupcakes. And that's a problem. So I just got to keep busy sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, there's just a lot of sensory overload and cupcakes are making me feel good. And you know what else I'm doing, Jeffreen? I'm listening to songs of my childhood. For some reason, I'm going back to like old school music. I'm like, yeah, this is like working for me. What are you doing? Early on in the pandemic, when the weather was shifting from spring to summer, I was taking hour and a half walks every day. And I stopped that in the middle of the summer because folks started to vacation. We had a, a lot of tourists kind of downtown where I live. And I was like, yeah, I can't be out here with like, like that. And so I started working out in the gym, which has always been a space of clarity for me. But at night, what I've started to do over the past couple of weeks is actually turn off my phone at 4.30 and not turn it back on until the next morning and take a nightly bath. So I'll be in the bathtub for 30 minutes and then have dinner. And by that time, I'm so relaxed that I'm ready to just go to bed. So that's what I've been doing recently. Wow. I mean, that sounds, that sounds so healthy. I mean, I'm eating cupcakes, you know, listening to old school R&B. <laughs> cupcakes hit. I did order some cupcakes a few weeks ago just to celebrate um, a recent win at Three Walls. But for me, it hasn't been food or alcohol. I love it because for me, it has been. <laughs> it's definitely been food and cupcakes. I mean, you have a great book, you know, Augusta Savage, but what are you reading? And are you watching any shows that you just have been binging on? So I'm not reading anything right now because the work at Three Walls has been so intense. I'm also writing. So no reading right now. Um, I have a whole stack of books that um, I need to get to that deal with race. You know, I've been hearing a lot from people about their stacks of books they can't get to. I wonder what's happening with that. People have stacks of books and they're not getting to their stacks of books. So the books that I have are also about research and so they're on race. And I have to be in a certain mind space to read those. So it might also just be sensory overload, right? And the pandemic and all that. But I do love Lovecraft Country, which is on HBO, created by Misha Green. So I watched that. I have a real guilty pleasure. I watch, <laughs> I watch Life After Lockup. <laughs> I find it really fascinating the whole pen pal prison pen pal thing and a lot of times it's men writing and developing a relationship with women who've been locked up and then the notion of building a life together with someone you really don't know 
and getting married. And some of these men want to get married as soon as they get out. And it's like, but they haven't even had any wow. real freedom. But I'm, I'm interested in how people relate to each other. And at the end of the day, right, we all want to connect with another human. And a lot of the things that I'm doing now as a result of our quarantine, lockdown, whatever you want to call it, I feel like we're going to be in a life after lockup. I mean, you're an optimist. I'm trying to like, I'm thinking like revolution, <laughs> take to the streets. I mean, I don't know. But you know, Jeffrey, this has been like totally amazing talking to you. This has been a conversation that's been overdue and long time coming on my show and on our Esther show. It's been such a pleasure listening to you be completely honest about the topics that Esther and I talk about privately. I mean, these are the kinds of things that Esther and I talk about privately when we're, we're just, just generally. So this has been great. So glad that you came on and had this time with us. And we're just excited about your new platform, For the Love of Black, which is F-O-R, the, T-H-E, love, L-O-V-E, of, O-F, and B-L-K.com, which you can check that out and wait for Jeffrey's brand new podcast, which is coming out in November. You can find all of her spaces and everything that she's doing in the world. And definitely check out Three Walls, which is three-walls.org. She has completely transformed that artistic cultural experience into a whole new level of amazingness. And just want to thank you so much for joining us, Jeffreen. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much to our audience for listening to the Honest Field Guide podcast. I'm Esther. I'm Ginger. I'm Jeffreen. And we'll talk to you next time.